George Floyd. Waukesha Wilson. Waukesha Wilson. The Black Lives Matter protests that enveloped the world this month didn't begin with the murder of unarmed, handcuffed African-American George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police on May 25th. No, they began seven years ago, in June 2013, when a Florida jury acquitted a man named George Zimmerman of murder after he'd shot another unarmed African-American, a high school student named Trayvon Martin. Alicia Garza remembers the moment well, as she told the newspaper USA Today in 2015. I was at a bar with friends, and we were waiting for the verdict. And when we heard that George Zimmerman had been acquitted, it was as if we had all been punched in the gut. Trayvon could have been my brother. And so I immediately felt not only enraged, but a deep sense of grief that I can't protect him. It really has to do with a a society that has a really sick disease, and that disease is racism. So I started writing a love note to black people on Facebook saying that it wasn't our fault and it didn't have anything to do with pulling up your pants or voting or education or any of that. That fundamentally what it has to do with is systemic racism. And what I said was something to the degree of black people, I love you, I love us, our lives matter, we matter, black lives matter. And so Black Lives Matter was started in that spirit uh, by two queer women and the daughter of Nigerian immigrants. And we started Black Lives Matter as a love note to black communities, but also as a fundamental demand that black lives must matter in this country for, in order for all of us to achieve the freedom and the democracy that we hold up as the core of our nation's values. Since then, Black Lives Matter has grown from a slogan to a structured campaign to a loosely knit but incredibly effective organization that's catalyzed a broad-based movement which has forced a fundamental rethink of the way the United States approaches both law enforcement and civil rights. It's the kind of energy we've occasionally seen in the climate movement as well, but that will come to nothing if it's not channeled into tangible policy, like the U.S. Civil Rights Act of 1964, which grew out of a broad-based and strategically-minded civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King. The environmental and civil rights progress of the 1960s and 70s changed the United States forever. But it's also, tragically, been systematically undermined ever since by equally strategic right-wing groups funded by deep-pocketed operations like Koch Industries, the Mercer family, ExxonMobil, and others, as documented by historians like Nancy McLean in her 2017 book Democracy in Chains, as well as Dark Money by Jane Meyer. The great tragedy of the climate movement today is that the people activating on the streets are often disconnected from the realities of workable solutions, while the people developing those solutions, the scientists, the policy wonks, the foresters, the indigenous people, they're disconnected from the streets. This really hit me two years ago at an event called the Global Climate Action Summit. It was huge. Alec Baldwin was there, and Al Gore, and Harrison Ford, and walking trees, too. People on stilts, draped in leaves. They were tall and willowy, towering over us. They were beautiful. That was the public face, but tedious workshops took up most of the time where experts focused on new ways of, say, helping indigenous people conserve their forests, or of farming sustainably, or of monitoring supply chains, the kind of important but sometimes wonky stuff that I try to break down for you guys in this podcast. 
So, we had these high-profile but kind of fluffy events designed to get the word out. And then we had these scientists, these policy wonks, these indigenous groups focusing on viable solutions that could get us out of this mess, but in language that was impossible to understand if you didn't have a graduate degree in forestry or political science or anthropology or all three. It was, quite frankly, depressing. And then this happened. I told some people I'm not going to another conference, I'm not going to another march, I'm not going to another rally, I won't even come to a summit unless I see some excitement among you, the co-warriors who are here today. You are the warriors. His name was Reverend Dr. Gerald L. Durley, and he lit up this wonky policy event like nothing I'd ever seen before. You are the warriors. You are the fighters. What good? If we've got a cause, if our cause is just, and I know that it is, We've got to go back to what made us strong during the civil rights movement. What does the civil rights movement have to do with climate change? And who is this guy to preach about it to a room full of scientists and policy wonks? To answer the first question, climate change and civil rights are inexorably intertwined. Not just because the destruction of our living ecosystems robs us of our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but because the climate challenge and the civil rights challenge both require coordinated, systematic solutions backed by all segments of society and often opposed by entrenched interests. To answer the second question, I'll reference Reverend Durley's 2014 autobiography, I Am Amazed, Reflections on an Awe-Inspiring Life, which I picked up after meeting him on this day. Born in Kansas and raised in California, he finished high school in Oregon and then marched with Martin Luther King Jr. while earning his first of many academic degrees, this one in psychology at Tennessee State. While there, Bobby Kennedy noticed him and persuaded Durley to join the Peace Corps, which he did. That brought him to Nigeria, then to Switzerland, before he came home to the United States and became a central figure in Atlanta's civil rights scene. What made us strong were two key words. One word was we were willing to sacrifice. The other was take a risk. I knew nothing of Reverend Durley before he was asked to open a panel discussion on indigenous rights. But I knew that he electrified a room full of policy wonks, which is hard to do. And he did so for two reasons. First, he really knew his stuff. Durley knows about environmental science and policy. Second, because he wasn't just reiterating something all of us in that room knew, but reminding us of something that many of us had forgotten. Specifically, he reminded us that climate change isn't just about science or economics. The issues I usually try to address on this show, but about something deeper, more human. This is a moral war that we're in today. Immoral decisions are being made. I don't need breaking news to tell me what's going on. I don't need another white paper and I don't need uh, scientists. I see and smell what's going on in the environment. And guess what? You in this room, we make the real news. When the news comes out, nobody can doubt us. We cannot ever again say that we're not winners. The civil rights movement taught me one thing. I never thought I'm 77 years old now, a great-grandfather, and I talk to my grandchildren. I say, this is your time. Join in. We cannot break down and build silos, black and white and gay and lesbian and red and blue. We're all on this planet together, and environmental <laughs> climate change is an equal opportunity destroyer. To me, it is the civil rights issue of our time. And if our time is to have any kind of sustainability, it's got to come from those in this room. It can't be the person next to you. We've got to join forces, hold hands, look up. And I think about this now. The God that created this universe is still in charge. And if we can understand and connect to something that's in charge, guess what? We will win this war. Don't give up! Don't back up! Don't quit! Don't turn around! Know that this is a... Get excited about something! Don't just say this is another conference, this is another summit. Every now and then you ought to want to stand up and say, we will not be defeated, we will not bow down, we will not back up. This is our moment, this is our time! Don't, don't take it for granted! Don't take this for granted! We are winning, we are not losers! God bless you. Did I do it in eight minutes? 
man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we speak with the Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley about how we can tap into the same forces that galvanize the civil rights movement to fix the climate mess. Today's show is a bit different from most in that we're not diving specifically into land use issues like forestry and sustainable farming, although Reverend Durley does touch on that. Instead, we're examining the ways that we can engage people emotionally to get us all working together on this, the greatest challenge that our civilization has ever faced. Today's show is largely an encore presentation, so if you're a paid patron, you will not be charged for it. If you're not a paid patron, but like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet, all one word, no dots or dashes. There you can support me for as little as $1 per month. If the climate change, global warming, environmental justice movement is to have any level of sustainability, if it is to recruit new people, young people, and continue to keep people involved who are involved, it's got to take a different bent. It's got to be not just be in your head, but it's got to be in your heart. It's got to be in your gut. Too many people are scientifically solid, but they're emotionally dead. Dead people have never moved any movement. People must be excited. When I think about what God has done for all of us in terms of a perfectly balanced ecological world and how we've destroyed it, uh, then I have to get excited. The word enthusiasm is from the Greek word entheos, meaning in God. And when God is blessing you, you've got to be strong and solid. But what I see people come and they give me all the statistics on on. Uh, uh, fracking, all the statistics on carbon dioxide in the air, all the statistics on acidity in the ocean and what the sharks and the, and the whales are doing. But we've got to take that and translate it into the human dimension that we've got to protect each other so that we can protect the planet. But we're dull. And no, I don't want to get on any losing team where the coach tells me we're losing every game. But we come to conferences and marches and rally, and I hear all the statistics saying, well, 25,000 people died on that island, and the sun is scorching us, and we're at a critical point, and pretty soon I'm so down, I can't believe that I can get up. <laughs> We've got to inject this into this movement now that we're on the winning team. If you've got three people with some kind of excitement, we're winning. It doesn't take a great number of people to turn something around. Just one or two who believe that can touch other people. They told me I could never vote in this country. And the man that told me I couldn't vote, he's dead, and I'm voting every day. <laughs> so every now and then you've got to believe in your mission. We've got people that know all of the statistics, and they'll leave a conference, and they'll say, now, where are we going to meet next week? Let's meet in, in Brussels. Let's meet over there. And they discuss the same thing. It's good to over reinforce. Over and over again. Yeah. 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 It's good to reinforce information, but that information needs to be channeled into activism. And how do we do that? Well, I think the first thing you do, you got to believe in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then once you believe in what you're doing, two things kept us strong in the civil rights movement. Two words. One, we were willing to sacrifice and risk. See, if my mother got in my way, I'd have to walk over my mother in 1960 because the cause is greater than the individual. So consequently, when somebody says, I would like to get in the movement, and then they, I say, we're meeting next Thursday, and they tell me they've got an after 
after business meeting, or they've got to go to a sorority meeting, or go to a fraternity meeting, they're not work ready. They're not willing to sacrifice that time. It's going to say, what am I willing to sacrifice? And then once you and I come together to sacrifice, we're like a brick. Mm-hmm. And when you get three bricks together, you got the beginning of a wall. And when you got a wall, you can start building your house. And you can determine, do you want it to be a house or a bridge? But it starts with individual commitment, willing to commit, sacrifice, and risk. And that starts with understanding the importance. Unfortunately, now we cannot reach the masses that everybody keeps talking about because we're not speaking that language. The Atlanta Housewives, which is a television show, is ahead of our scientific data right now mm-hmm. because they, they're streaming right into where people are. That's what we've got to do. We have got to now go into people's gut. You've talked about believing you're on the winning team, and you marched with Martin Luther King. Right. You were on a team that was definitely the underdog for underdog. a long, long time, and you stuck with it. How? What lessons did you pull out of that? I think the lessons that we learned, first of all, now it was strange for me. Uh, I grew up in California. I was born in Wichita, Kansas, and I finished high school in Denver, Colorado. And when I finished high school, a coach said it was the 1960 Olympics, Wilma Rudolph, Cassius Clay at that time. Mm-hmm. They were all coming to Nashville, uh, and I was there as a freshman looking at it, and I began to understand when I got to, from Colorado to, to Nashville, I was riding on the bus. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the Tennessee State line, the man pulled me and said, you gotta sit behind this line, nigga. And I said, what? And, and two elderly ladies said, don't cause any trouble. Man. You'll get killed down here. So I, here I was, an all-city, all-state basketball player being told by a bus driver to sit behind the line in Nashville, wow. Tennessee. Certain things in your life that just prick you, but you don't know what, and it builds on it. And so consequently, when I got there, uh, I met uh, uh, Andy Young and the different ones and a march there in, in Nashville. And I said, wait a minute, what is this about? And they started explaining Me having grown up in California and Colorado, I didn't see that kind of overt racism. I was used to covert racism. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, I said, there's got to be something that I've got to do. I didn't know what. Many times, even in the climate movement, we don't know what. We know we've got to do something. You don't have to have the answer, but you've got to, you don't have to have the destination. You've at least got to get on the road. <laughs> so I'm on the road right now. Right. I don't know what it's going to be uh, at the end, but I do know something is not right. right. I do know that in this movement today, it is a civil and a human rights issue, and we all deserve to, to be there. So to answer your question, the thing that sustains you is the belief factor that it can happen. I don't know how many people believe that is that we can turn this around, this critical point. We can turn it around if enough people believe. Right. And that's what it really starts. Because let me, I've learned one thing. Everything starts with a thought. And your thoughts become your words. And your words become your... Your words become your behavior. Your behavior becomes your actions. Your actions become your habits. And your habits become your destiny. Mm-hmm. And our destiny is to turn things around. But we can't get to our destiny if our thoughts are warped. So right, we've got right. to change the thought process. And the thought process is that we're winning. You also studied psychology. So there's I, a little well, bit of background in that. I too. got there. I'm a, I'm a licensed psychologist. I finished undergraduate at Tennessee State. A master's from Illinois. A doctorate from the University of Massachusetts. And another wow. master's from uh, Howard University in Divinity. My first three are in psychology. And then I, 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 was vice pre- I was vice president of two universities and all that. And while doing all of that, I pastored one of the largest Baptist churches in Atlanta for 25 years while I was dean at Morehouse School of Medicine. So with Lou Satcher and David, David Satcher and Lou Sullivan, I was then talking about he- the health. But see, it's one thing to talk about the climate environment. It's another thing to create an environment where people can come together and break down their barriers. So we were fighting a two-fold barrier, a two-fold environment, the environment of the mind and the environment of the climate. And when they two come together, then we've got a chance to, to continue to win. Mm-hmm. But as a psychologist, as a pastor, as a person who now is trying to, I could go into the didactics of all of the kinds of issues there, but across town here in the global science, they know all of that. Yeah. All of the politicians know all of that. And I'm not above now saying, and you heard me say this morning, that now we've got to understand the legislative process. We've got to change the voting, but to vote for what? To vote that they do not uh, take back all of the uh, regulations that we put in the automobile industry, that we do not go back and drill in the ocean, that we do not cut back on the CO2 levels that we've set for 105 or 2 points Celsius. Mm-hmm. So, so the politics is very important because politicians 
make the laws. But guess who influences the politician? The business people. When they say Donald Trump's base are those people out there wearing those red hats, that's not Donald Trump's base. His base is Wall Street. Business people, and they're doing all right. Mm -hmm. And the people that are around screaming after him, they're still going to hell in the wastebasket. So we've got to get to the to the business community and get to the political community to make an impact on lives. Can you imagine somebody saying, I want to change all the health care and they don't have health care? Mm. That's a psychological deprivation of a person who has no hope. So we've got to, first of all, if the movement is to have, we've got to believe that's hope. And a hopeless people is a desperate people and a desperate people leads to depression and depression leads to personal suicide. And right now we're on a suicidal path unless we say we've got some hope to make a difference. So I'm using the psychological, the spiritual, as well as the business and the political side to try to engender some kind of enthusiasm about people to get up and do something. Yeah, now when you when you talk like this, I feel like we're going to win this thing. I feel oh, like we're getting it going. We're winning now because yeah. the two of us are talking. Exactly. How, now how do you how do we reach the the guys in the red hats as you put it? Well, I think first of all, I've learned one thing and and uh, they used to say Durley, you're a great motivational speaker. I am not a motivational speaker. I tried for years to get my son, motivate him to pull up his pants. It didn't work. <laughs> but what you can do, what I am, is an inspirational person. The word inspire simply means to breathe something in. So if we're to get those red people with the red hats, they've got to be inspired. Mm -hmm. They've got to be inspired. And how do you inspire them? To let them look at where they really are to make their own decision. See, you can't motivate, but you can inspire. And once you inspire, guess what? People will motivate themselves. And it's only when we become motivated, only when the red hats become motivated. Uh, they can be going broke. They can leave the coal mining industry and all of that. And they still will hold on to something that they think is coming. That the hope is through this, but that's beginning to fail now. Now, as it begins to fail, what do we give them? We talk about the economy in terms of alternative jobs, in terms of solar, wind. We talk about the healthcare kinds of issues. We talk about... Uh, the educational platforms, things that are bread and butter issues to most Americans. Mm -hmm. So we bring it back to the reality. And I just believe with all that I've seen, even, even during the, the most racist times that I saw in Mississippi and Alabama 58 years ago, there were some decent people, but they were misled, misplaced hate and ignorance and fear. So we alleviate that fear and that ignorance by saying, look, is this what you want for you and your children and your future generation? I believe at that point, that nexus point, we can start seeing a difference. Can you think of an example of a time where an intervention like this was made where, where there was someone who you knew had no hope and you or someone you knew were able to infuse hope into this person to help them turn around, to empower this person to move forward? Well, well, I think that my example and my role model was when Martin Luther King and I shared with him when he first started. This was a 26-year-old man that had finished Harvard University and went down to Alabama. He had two small children. He did not really want to get involved in all of this. He knew about it. He was concerned. But a group of older people in Montgomery had a meeting and formed the M Montgomery Improvement Association and said, let's go get that young kid down there and bring <laughs> him down here because we don't want to lose our jobs. We don't want to fight the establishment. So that one person who started just speaking out and getting with Rosa Parks and starting a 365-degree, 365-bus uh, 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 boycott, made a difference and somebody else came will you come over to my city will you come over to my city and next thing he was receiving the nobel peace prize after 13 years one person can make a difference the same thing i could say with gandhi or desmond tutu these were individuals that are are, are uh, nelson mandela mm -hmm. what he had to give up and if you're not willing to sacrifice and risk nothing will happen and i think that that's the key the ingredients that's the fuel in this car mm -hmm. what good is it for you to have a beautiful rolls royce and no engine mm -hmm. we are the engine people now to turn the economy to turn the climate uh, effort around so the individuals like that when i sit and talk to a mother who's lost three kids to drug and one murdered and i have to talk about a system that has been unjust to her and for me to come up and talk about climate change that's the furthest thing for her mind so i have to connect the dots between what's going on in the climate when you take a people and keep them in a cluster ghetto with poor education no job and turn the heat up to 105 degrees over a seven day period you've got a volatile situation so that's an environmental that affects the societal and the justice issues that are permeating these little enclaves so we got to come from a, a point of jobs of education of uh, uh, of uh, health care then we can begin to 
to create the kind of massive element to touch the lives of the business people. And you can see I am not above what we did. I am not above boycott. If right. they're going to keep the plastic going into the ocean that's killing our fish, if they're going to keep doing all of that that's killing the plankton and on the corals down there in South Africa because they're being bleached now, mm. then we've got to say, no, we will not put up with that. I went up to Washington a few weeks ago with a large group of, of mothers to, to, to talk about just the quality of, of air and, and, and GMOs, genetically modified organisms. A man pulled me to the side in the Rayburn building and said, we will never label products here with GMO because they will not buy it in Europe. That means profits over people. We're not saying stop testing. We're saying at least label it so people can can buy the product. People in urban areas, rural, they cannot afford organic food. So they've got to eat carrots that have never been in the ground mm -hmm. and all of this. Right, so we've right. got to now uh, connect the dots for people that they say this is real. And the key thing, too, is that it is not real in the future. It is real now. Mm -hmm. See, we, as long as we can keep putting it off, we can no longer put this off. This, and I'm not an alarmist. I'm not crying fire in the auditorium. This is real. Well, there is a fire, though. Yeah, it's. Oh, it, it's yeah. a fire. Yeah, yeah. But and but, how do we balance this? Because this is something you know, a lot of communications uh, consultants always say is we can't use fear. Whereas it sounds like what you're saying is we have to motivate by the fear because it's a it's a real threat, no, and no, then no. we have to offer a solution. No, right? yeah, I, I think first of all, I think that there's a difference in how you portray. Now, having been a pastor for many years, I could use fire and brimstone doesn't work anymore. I can get up and preach about going to hell all day and people go out and cuss each other out in the parking lot. <laughs> so fear does not work. But it's how you couch the situations that are coming in on people that they themselves make the change. I'm convinced you can't convince or change anybody until they see. I tell them all the time, all I am when I speak to you, I'm a mirror. And a mirror allows you to reflect on who you are. If you've got a smudge on your face, you can look at it, and I'm the mirror, and you can say, I've got a smudge. I think I'll just leave it alone. Or I've got a smudge. I think I'll change it. Or I don't see the smudge. It's the mirror's problem. So you've got to get create. Don't say be fearful right. about all the things. We saw that with the cigarette industry. People kept smoking, yeah. and they said, it's, you're causing cancer. Okay, well, when should I stop? No, because they couldn't see it. Then they put a little thing. Uh, by the Surgeon General on the side. People are still smoking. So that's the fear of that. Jails have not made people afraid of murder, mm -hmm. uh, all these kinds of atrocious crimes. So that fear doesn't work. But it's how you couch and what are the alternatives. And when people say, wait a minute, climate change is destroying my home, is destroying my life. Cancer is at an alarming rate in our neighborhood, in our neighborhood asthma. So those are realities. Those are not fearful uh, uh, baseless charges. That's right. the reality. And when people can see the reality and it's connected, then you can, then they'll ask the question, "What can I do?" Then we're ready. Then we've got to move. Yeah, yeah. Once you get that little spark, that it's spark, like, okay, yeah. and that's all that a fire is. You notice a fire is you got uh, you've got a spark and you've got the kind of material to keep it flaming. One 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 group that you could probably comment on a bit is the whole faith based community. They've yeah. been pretty slow to get into this. Uh, yeah, and, well, and 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 on the evangelicals. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that evangelicals are somewhat reticent is because you've you got to understand your major evangelical churches, their membership owns the companies. And if they want to keep their collection plate filled, they better <laughs> keep, the, keep the congregation happy. Uh -huh. so like which one? Which, uh, well, you want to get in specifics? I don't or want to name any specifics. It's a, it's a generalization, you know. Uh, and I think that we have to be concerned. But, but again, in the, in the Christian tradition, in the faith, so many times when we're preaching, we're very comfortable going to Exodus, the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. And we take up the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not steal. And we get so caught up in all of the thou shalt nots in the second book. And when you stay on the second book, that's wrong. When you play baseball, you don't hit the ball and run to second base. You <laughs> run to first base. First base in the climate change is Genesis, the first chapter where God says, I have given you a perfectly balanced ecological world where you'll have clean water and all of this, uh, clean water and fresh air. You are the stewards. Take care of it. That's the first commandment. But we're more comfortable going to the Ten Commandments, and we're so busy in the Ten Commandments, we're missing the first commandment, and we're destroying a perfectly balanced earth. And now we're reap reaping the percussion from Sandy to Florence coming up now. So we've got to go back to that first commandment. How do we go back to one that created all of this and gave us what we have and say, take care of it? We said, no, I'm going to go over here and condemn you for, for cursing and gambling and drinking and chasing women. And we miss that we're destroying it. So now that we've destroyed so much of ourselves now, we just continue to destroy, destroy the earth.
Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that we've got to go back and allow people to convict themselves. I'm through convicting people. As I said earlier, no more doom and gloom for me. I'm on a winning team. Yeah, yeah. I go. I want to be around winners. I want to be around. But we still that can don't. Win. We have to worry about the the, the I bad guys. About anything. The, the worry the schizophrenic. But what do we do about the the Koch brothers? Let me tell you what. I spoke out in Kansas. I didn't know the Koch brothers were from my home. Is which I was born in Wichita uh-huh. headquarters. Right. And I was speaking at the University of Kansas, and I was just tearing up the Koch brothers. <laughs> and and the, and somebody raised the audience. Well, what are you going to do about the Koch brothers? I said absolutely not. Nothing. I'm more concerned about what we're going to do. If I spent all my time wondering about the Koch brothers, I would never get anywhere. All the money that they have. A man told me I'd never vote. He's dead. I'm voting. So consequently, if I worry about all of that, if I'm concerned about that, I, I, I wear myself out and I can't say, come on, let's get together and do this. And you tell me we can't. The Koch brothers. Who are the Koch brothers? The well, coach used to tell me you put, I, you know, I understand the, mm-hmm. the larger part. But, uh, and, and Ted Turner and I talk about this a lot. I never would have gotten into this, but I saw he's only 84 years old, but he's given his life to, and others have given their life. So I, I have to look and I have to be honest with myself. Let me give an example. I, I was a, a hypocrite. Uh, when I first got into this, I always drove a, a Mercedes 550. Because I was poor all my life. And I said, when I finally get some money, I'm going to buy the best car they make. And so I got into the movement. And I'm going to meetings with people like Laura and all of them. And they were driving Priuses. And and I would park my car two blocks so they wouldn't see that I was driving a gas car. I was phony. See, we got to get away from fake news. Because that's the only thing worse than fake news is fake people. And I was faking. So then I traded in. So now I drive a hybrid. I feel better when, because I had to make the choice, mm-hmm. but I had to break through a lot of the personal and battles in my own mind. We've got to help people break through those. How important is this effort? How is it? Uh, how is what I do going to make a difference? Many people don't think one person can make a difference. And I used to preach about one person who did make a difference, but they hung him on the cross, too. So what's wrong with hanging on the cross? <laughs> Pretty good role model. Yeah, yeah. Because you will get up in three days. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but you've got you to be willing to get up on the cross. You see, so if we can get us to that point that we are at a critical nexus point in this whole journey mm-hmm. and we can inspire that. The word enthusiasm is in Greek is entheos mm-hmm. in God. Right. No, no. But it's an interesting thing. In God simply means in a belief. Atheists believe in something yeah. and they would jump up and fight. So we've got to improve that. And how do you do it? By making people believe that we can believe in something larger than yourself and larger, larger yeah. than yourself larger than yourself and that you are part of that we do get this sense that that you know the the election of Donald Trump in this country has has sparked a lot of disenfranchised people or or people who had not given up hope but become complacent to start, suddenly get involved yes. do you see are there specific organizations or movements within this whole resistance uh, that that you think are the most likely to to help lead to change, or is it everybody? Oh, no, or is it definitely. I think I think so. Much. I've got a a young brother. He's I call him a, kind of a younger brother named Al Sharpton, <laughs> and uh, he's got National Action Network. The NAACP has got a large platform. Uh, 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 Sierra Club, I think, is doing a fantastic job. Uh, Interfaith Power and Light. We're in forty. I chair that board, and we're in forty states, twenty-eight thousand houses of faith. Uh, when we founded World Pilgrims in Atlanta, Muslims, Christians, Jews, and Buddhists, we're talking about not only learning each other the differences in our faith, but how do our faith speak the same language when we talk about earth, wind, and fire? The earth is the fullness of God, but the Muslims say it too, and the Jews say it. The indigenous people say it. Indigenous too. people yeah. certainly they do. And so consequently, uh, there are groups, the NAACP, Sierra Club, and, and uh, Nexus. Uh, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. You'd be interested in this. There's a young man, I won't name his name, but he believes that we need to impeach the president. And he's putting his resources to impeaching the president. I don't think we should impeach President uh, Frankenstein. I think that he needs to stay there. Frankenstein said, I'm going to make a greater man, and he made a disaster. So I don't think that because... Pence is worse than Trump. But he's religious, too. So was the Klan. <laughs> yeah, good point. Klan, yeah. I used to, when I taught at Illinois, I used to read a, a prayer, a very religious prayer, and ask my students in a survey course, who read that prayer? Uh, who said this prayer? It was a prayer that said, dear God, we thank you so much for all that you are doing, for helping us weed out all of the diseases in our neighborhood, for giving us clairvoyance that we might grab people and individuals and anything that would stop us from being who you called us to be. And I would ask the question, who prayed that prayer? The Jews would say it's a great rabbinical prayer. <laughs> 
The Muslims say, oh, Allah is there. And the Christians say, oh, that's Jesus. And that was a prayer that the Ku Klux Klan prayed every time they lynched somebody. Wow. They were deeply religious people with a conviction. So consequently, it's not about religion, but it's about a moral question that we've got to ask and that people have got to ask for themselves. And then we can start this effort to be, sustain this effort. You had talked earlier about uh, a project that you're involved in in Israel. And I think you just alluded alluded to it uh, a few minutes ago. I forget the name of it, where where you were swapping. You you had people. Well, that was that was World Pilgrims, and we started with twelve. Uh, uh, been twelve years ago, and we would go Muslims, Christians, and Jews. When we go to Turkey, rabbis and Christian ministers, we would sit under the feet of Imam Pliman Alamin in the Blue Dome in Istanbul, and he would teach us from the Quran. And can you imagine Jewish rabbis looking toward the east? Or when we go to, to uh, Antioch, the rabbi, Rabbi Rosh, Josh Lesser, or Rabbi Sugarman, or God Goodman, would open up the Torah, the big scrolls, and read from the Torah. And it's interesting when you begin to compare what Allah and what Jehovah said. Then when they get to Ephesus, it's my turn to say <laughs> what, what thus saith the Lord. Mm. And what we looked at, and it's all kind of verses that's talking about the fullness thereof, and God is in and all of this. So then we change roommates every other night. Because before you were a Jew, before you were a Muslim, before I was a Christian, you were just a little baby. You didn't have that label on you. Yeah. You were a girl baby. <laughs> then you said, oh, I'm a girl baby. Oh, I'm a girl baby who's an African-American. Oh, I'm a girl baby who's an African-American, and I'm in a Christian home. Therefore, then, and oh, and you're that. So we try to strip away all that and say, we're just, mm -hmm. we're just here. And you cry like I do. I hurt like you do. We go through the same thing. We might have different economic differences, but as human beings that God created in their own image of God, we've got to do it. So that was the purpose of World Pilgrims. And so right now, we've got about 400 in the Alumni Association. Mm -hmm. And in that association, Chattanooga, they were getting ready to close a mosque in Chattanooga. We made one phone call and had four buses rolling over there and stood out in front of the mosque. Christians, Jews, and we said, no, you will not run over us first. Wow. And it backed off. And uh, the same thing with interfaith power and life, wherever I am, with our 40 states and all this, that it's not about black and white and your sexual differences because climate change, climate, global warming is an equal opportunity destroyer. <laughs> so we've got to have some affirmative action steps on that to speak out if we're going to bring any change. But it starts with conviction and conversion. And I'm not trying to get religious, but you've got to be convicted before you can be converted. But before you can be convicted of converted, you've got to have a calling. And the calling comes from the message that comes from us, comes through us from a God that's saying, you all are still blowing it. When are you going to give me a break? When are you going to give me a break? And that's what we've got to do now. I have to confess, I'm not a particularly religious person anymore, but I found this guy really inspiring. And if Reverend Durley inspires you as much as he inspires me, I encourage you to pick up his book, I Am Amazed, which reads like he talks, fast and fun and full of wisdom that catches you looking the other way. Unfortunately, there's no audiobook for I Am Amazed, but if you listen to audiobooks, you can support Bionic Planet by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet for a free 30-day trial at audible.com the address again is audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet that's bionic planet with no dots dashes or spaces as opposed to my website which is bionic planet.com you may have noticed that my production has slowed to a trickle over the past two months and i've gotten plenty of complaints about that from listeners I do have several new episodes in various states of production, and I've had them in various states of production for about two months. Because the simple fact is that we've had to take on a lot of consulting work to keep Ecosystem Marketplace going, and I haven't had the bandwidth to produce shows of the quality that I think is needed. If you want more episodes, consider pitching in to help me produce them. You can help keep me afloat for as little as $1 per episode by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet 
That's all one word, Bionic Planet, no dots or dashes. If you're already a paying patron, you will not be charged for this episode because it's a rerun. But if you want more new episodes, then please pitch in. The address again is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Finally, be sure to give me a good five-star review on whichever app you subscribe through. Because the more reviews I get, the more ears I get. The more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Why don't we talk a little bit about your experiences abroad and how that may have informed your views and then talk about the TV okay. project. Well, basically, uh, I was deeply involved in the civil rights movement. I came back. I was there uh, ground screw at March, the March on Washington. That was my senior year in college, uh, 1963. And uh, I, we came back, and I was president of student government and leading in the Nashville movement there. And uh, got back, and that was uh, August the 28th. So September, we're organizing, getting people moving up. September, October, uh, and then all of a sudden, a big disaster occurred. November 22nd, 1963, they killed John F. Kennedy. And when they killed Kennedy, I had to speak to the entire student body: Do we go on? Do we continue to fight here in Nashville? And we got stronger and stronger, but uh, we became much more militant at that time. See, I wasn't, I wasn't a, a terrorist. I was a militant. And uh, but then at my senior year, a man came into my room and said, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You need to leave the country. And my brother-in-law has started a program that you might be interested in. I said, no, I don't want to see your brother-in-law. I'm through talking to everybody. We're going to do what we got to do as students here in Nashville. He said, well, think about it. And he asked me three questions. Who do you know that's important? Where have you been outside of the United States? And how much money do you have in your pocket? Well, as a college student, I didn't have much money. I'd never been outside of the United States, and I didn't know any senators, anybody. He said, then why don't you listen to me and think about my brother's, brother-in-law's program. His brother-in-law was John Fitzgerald Kennedy. He started a program called the United States Peace Corps. I was in the first Peace Corps group to go to Nigeria, West Africa, in 64, and got over there and spent two years really learning and really growing. So when I got ready to come back to America, I couldn't get in, so I had to move to Switzerland. And live there. That's the reason why I speak French very well. Because for 12 years, I was in Switzerland. And Schweizerdeutsch also? Ah, I speak it. Yeah, okay. But my head is not my internet in Spanish. But anyway, <laughs> so I had to come back to, to, to America. And, and, and I, that's when I enrolled in Illinois and became so angry. I joined the Panther Party in Chicago in 68. And uh, with the Black Panther Party. My neck of the woods. Yeah. I was right there off of Halstead Street. Okay. Well, yeah, and I went to Northern Illinois. That's, and I started okay. a program the there Gernfields. called Chance. Yeah, Chance stood for Complete Help and Assistance Necessary for College Education, recruiting students. Because I was trying to channel that energy. And then, of course, I finished there and went on to the University of Massachusetts and then back to Howard University. But all those times I stayed in the street. And I think that keeps you grounded. Yeah. That keeps you grounded. And I think that that's what's going to be key, and that's what they were leading to today. I'm dealing with millennials now who don't worship anywhere, and the key to getting millennials is find out where they are. Mm -hmm. See, I believe the best time is not a Sunday morning service, but a 5 o'clock Saturday when they've done all their work before they go party. Mm -hmm. Worship at 5 o'clock on Saturday because on Sunday they're gonna, they party so hard on Saturday night they can't get up to come <laughs> on Sunday. They're not, they're not going into this. Uh -huh. so, so consequently, find the time that, that's best for them. Right, so right. 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is not a good time for most millennials. Mm -hmm. One, and they don't want to hear the same old traditional methods. They want to know, let me come in, let me hear what I can do, and how can I be sustained in what I've got to do? Mm -hmm. And then let me go on my way. Mm -hmm. The only inconvenience they might accept is parking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right, it. right. But other than that, they don't want to hear somebody get up and talk all day long about appreciation dinners. Mm -hmm. so, so consequently, we've got to, to do that. And change, and particularly in the African-American community, I'm working with a lot of young pastors who are saying now you have an obligation, as I said earlier, a moral responsibility to, to not just paint a negative picture, but paint a picture of hope because our people are becoming depressed and depression is one step away from self-inflicted yeah. pain and death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, African-American women have been turning up in the polls lately, though. Every, every, oh, or yeah. All of our hopes are on you guys Yeah, yeah well, Stacey Abrams <laughs> is down there running uh -huh. against it all over, you yeah. know. And out here in California, Camila Harris and all those. And I, I look back, and the women are doing, we did it down in Alabama when Roy Moore's election. And so it's very critical now. But before all of that, we've got to say you can do it. 
You heard me today. I guess you can win. We're winners. We're victorious. But if I say, oh, man, this radio, suppose I said, oh, this little radio cast, nobody's going to hear it. Nobody's going to do this. Pretty soon you'd say, well, uh, maybe he's right and we wouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. But it's going to touch some people. Somebody will hear it. It's like a farmer. They go out and plant seeds. They, 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 they hope the rain will come, the sun will come. But if you don't plant seeds, it's guaranteed you'll get right, no right. crop. Yep. So I'm going to keep on planting seeds during this, 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 because the harvest is, is coming. The harvest has come, so I've got to keep planting. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what, what is so important. And until we infuse that in the uh -huh. climate movement, it's just going to be a bunch of dead, tired, weary, that's, good people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've good been through, I've, I've fallen asleep at many, many, uh, yeah. many panel discussions. Yeah. And, and, and they'll get the little, the, 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 they'll take notes and they'll record things. But if they look at it, they're recording what they recorded at the last conference. Yeah, yeah, reruns, yeah. Yeah. You're gonna be you're gonna you're you're gonna be taking a lot of this knowledge that you've acquired over the years and putting it onto into a television program yeah, now in, in Atlanta. Yeah, in fact, uh, some people ask me, uh, "How are you enjoying retirement?" I'm not retired. I'm, let me give you the term I use. I'm rewired. <laughs> I'm in rewirement now. All the years that I've taken, all the jails that I went through, all of it, that was a part of my just going through until I got tired. Mm -hmm. And then some people, when they get tired, they say, well, we're going to retire you. I am rewired. So I'm pulling all of that together. And we're going to put a, together a show under AIB, Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasting Atlanta. 30, I mean, 12, 30-minute shows called Dare to Care with Dr. Gerald Durley. And on that program, there'll be two sides to every story. And somewhere in there, we can find something that anybody can pick up in the smorgasbord of discussion that meets their need. So the Black Lives Matter people were talking about the... Uh, 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 about the, uh, uh, the the veteran in the movement, uh, gentrification, which is occurring all over the country. Does that mean that because the tax base is bringing money into the cities, but many people cannot afford to to move? Where do they go? But other whites are coming and taking those homes. Let's look at all of that, and let's hear from those that are losing their home, those that are buying their home. And so we need to look at gentrification. We've got to look at the climate change issue when the city of Atlanta went from seven percent to twenty eight percent, just asthmatic condition, and how. It, or the hospitals joining in with that. We've got, so this program will look at that. So right now in rewirement, I'm just taking all of those things. In and rewirement. I'm just going to be kind of the asking like you're doing now, asking the question and let it come forth. Because I found when I go to the Golden Corral or any of these banquet, uh, buffets, I, it's all out there. Now, what beats, beats meets my need? And if I can get enough people in that banquet hall, that buffet, picking up the right kind of food, we can make it. And that's why we're winning now. That might be my new thing. We're winning. And the more I say it, you start believing it. And the more you believe it, the more you can say, say it emphatically. I can go out here on this corner right now and look up in the sky and stand by a tall building and just stand there. Next thing you know, somebody will come along and they'll look up. And I'm just looking. They'll look up. And the next <laughs> thing you know, it's about 10 of us looking yeah. up. And I can stop and, and, and I'll come to you and say, what are you looking at? He said, you don't see it? It's right up there. <laughs> Because yeah. people, it's infectious when people believe in something. I don't sense that now. But with all of the data that we have, the Paris Accord, the bond treaties, all of the, the kinds of efforts that are going. And we're focusing on getting the EPA director out of office. Wheeler is worse than the one that's, that was there before. Yeah. What was his name? Uh, uh, Pruitt. Pruitt. Yeah. Pruitt was an animal when he came. He he came out of the swamp, went to the swamp, and conducted the swamp with the swamp master. So consequently, we've got to understand that we now have an, a moral, we're in a moral war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are. Yeah, so that's, that. I guess that's, and I get more and more excited every time I'm asked to, to, to say something. And, and this was a tough trip for me to come on this time because my daughter-in-law is going through the last stages of cancer. She's oh, there God. with my son Sorry. in the hospital now. Mm -hmm. And so I started not to come, but as I said, it's a key word that all of us in the movement must understand. In the Greek, there are two words, chronos. The word chronos means that there are 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in a minute, and we get the word chronological. We said we'd meet chronologic. But there's another word that I think is very pronounced, K-A-I-R-O-S, kairos. Kairos means that there are no minutes, no hours. It is divinely inspired by a force greater than us. This is a Kairos moment. It wasn't planned. Mm -hmm. it, it came together at the right time, at the right 
purpose for the right reason with the right people. It will touch a right audience because it's Kairos. We've got to come back and allow that Kairos moment to come in our movement where we're not trying to plan everything yeah. but allow the intervention of an almighty sovereign God to make a difference. Because that's what it's about now. But we said, well, let's look at this. And we're going with the stay nine scores and 32% of this and 19% of that. And at the end, okay. And then somebody's going to try to out-statistic you. Right, well, yeah. we, And out-text you and out-email you. We, we've got all of that. Let's just bring it back to the basics. We've got to protect human life, plant life, animal life, insect life. And how about a little human life? <laughs> you see, that's yeah. what it's really about now. So... Th that's and I'm coming up with a phrase now in the last part of my journey here on earth called alive. That's what I'm about. Alive. Uh -huh. Alive stands for a life is valuable every day. I, I told a group the other day, I know now why the filmmakers come to Atlanta to film The Walking Dead, because that's all I see. <laughs> the walk going in the Safeway, the Kroger's, the public supermarket, Walking Dead. So we've got to come alive again. A life is valuable every day. And uh, if you go on Amazon and look up a book called I Am Amazed. Oh, that's your book. Okay. It's my book. It, everything. You'll see pictures in there me with Hillary Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, Jimmy Carter, uh, uh, Mother Teresa all over the world speaking in Israel. It's, uh, I'm Amazed by Gerald Durley. And everything I'm saying now is all. You'll see a picture when Coretta Scott King and Andy Young gave me this. Uh-huh. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, this is the uh, King Medallion for those that walk with Dr. King. 28 of them in the world. Nelson Mandela has number 19. Wow. I'm amazed right now to be able to sit here and talk to you. This mm -hmm. was not in my program when I got, came here this morning. Yeah. See, so, but we, and ama children learn through amazement. Yeah. And, and we've got to have a childlike attitude governed by an almighty great God. Mm -hmm. And then we can see some things happen. And, and as, as Lennox said, the power of love. And one of the things that I try to say to people who are disconcerted, who are going, not as a psychologist, but as a human being, a spiritual person is that in Philippians the fourth chapter verse seven it says God will guarantee you one thing now a lot of people said thinks God's going to guarantee them a pot over in Las Vegas that's not what he guaranteed he said here's what I give you I give watch this I give you the peace that surpasses all understanding and the peace that I give you will control two things in your life how you think and how you feel so at any moment in your life if you're not feeling well nor thinking well you're not at peace and if you're not at peace, you're rejecting a gift that God has already given you. So when the peace starts disrupting, say, God, give me back that peace. He said, oh, you got it. Just accept it. But most of us don't want to accept it because we got three degrees. You see, sometimes right, you got to right, cut yeah. through that and just go We're back to the too basic. Much, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Go back to the make. And then once you get the strategy, three words I want to share with you. And that is when we were organized and pulling together three words, organize, strategize and mobilize. Right now in the movement, we're still in the organizational phase. We got a lot of talking, but no real, and some strategies are solid. Uh, Self-driving cars, uh, wind and solar. But the real, once you organize, once you strategize, now mobilize. And once the mobilization phase comes, that's what this whole com uh, summit is about, trying to mobilize people. Mm -hmm. and, and once they become mobilized and uh, they can uh, make a difference. I remember we were marching in Skokie. All the newscasters stopped him and asked him, well, Dr. King, what about this and that? And he said something I've never forgotten. He said, wait a minute, I can't give you another interview. Watch, it, watch this. He said, I've got to go catch my people. You only have a movement when the leader has to catch the people. You don't have a movement if the leader's got to be pulling you along. Right, right. But when you can inspire people that will go when you're not there. When you're sick, when you're stumbling, when you're in jail. That, and he said, I've got to go catch my people. And I've never forgot that. So I said, if I'm ever in a position, I want to be so that I can inspire people so that they'll move whether I'm there or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what we've got to do. We don't need, people always ask me, is there another Martin Luther King on the horizon? No. No. Mm -hmm. They come along once in a while. So, and I say, you are the essence of that. Mm -hmm. When Martin sat down with Mahatma Gandhi, and they talked. He came back. He says, I found another way. And regardless of what happens to me, I've been to the mountaintop. And in his last speech, he said that. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we, in fact, we were all, Bernice King, his daughter, we were all in Memphis on the 50th anniversary of that. So that's what we've got to do now. Inspire individuals that they take ownership and make moral decisions about what we're facing right now. And there has to be, I don't know how to say it. It has to be, I, I, you've been... 
people that good people, knowledgeable people, smart people, wealthy people, but they give a lecture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, but at a place where there's a rally, you got to say, wait a minute, this is a rally. I spoke on the eighth in, in Atlanta. I said, I didn't come here for that. I came here because this is a rally. And a rally means you. Iron sharpens iron. So that's 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 kind of my sentiment right. on this. That's I mean that's a is this all making sense? This to you? makes a lot of sense. Out? I was gonna say it, it's very motivational. I'm motivated to go and do another ep- do as many episodes as I can. My little steps, um, and I hope uh, it, you know when I hear you talk, I really believe it. I yeah. feel like we're gonna we're gonna beat this thing and we're gonna get it. And there is no accident that you happen to come up with me that I happen to be. I started to leave last night after the I I, I presented at the Grace Cathedral last night. Through Interfaith Power and Light, we presented to the United Nations Secretary a scroll with 80,000 signatures on it about things that she needed to do at the United Nations. And then I started to catch a midnight plane to go back. But in a Kairos moment, mm-hmm. we're here now. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. Glad you, I'm glad you stuck around. Yeah. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's the Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley closing out this episode of Bionic Planet. And if you stick around through the closing theme, you'll get a bonus the full unedited audio of the speech he gave in San Francisco that got me hooked on this guy. If you like what you hear on Bionic Planet, be sure to share the love by giving me a good rating on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you access the show. You can also support me financially for as little as $1 per month by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. If enough of you do that, I can deliver more episodes and maybe better produced episodes to boot with a second set of ears and better editing and pacing. And finally, if you listen to audiobooks, you can support me by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet for a free 30-day trial to audible.com. The address again is audibletrial.com. It's all one word, audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. And it's bionicplanet with no dots, dashes, or spaces, as opposed to my website, which is bionic-planet.com. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening. Still there? Good. Here's that bonus content I promised you. Good morning. I am not the president nor the founder of Interfaith Power and Light, but the president is right there, Susan Hendershot of Interfaith Power and Light, which is an organization in about 40 states around the country and uh, 2,800 faith organizations. Let me thank all of you for coming this morning. And thinking and not Robert to talk about something that is extremely important to all of us, climate change. And today is a very special day. And you've assembled here this morning because I believe that you're compassionate, caring, committed persons who do not believe in something called fake news. Aaron Berger asked me earlier, what would you say this morning? What could you talk about in eight minutes? I said it took a Baptist preacher eight minutes to clear his throat, but I'll try to do it. (laughs) So I came this morning just to share an idea. He asked me, what would you talk about? What would be an appropriate title for these distinguished people today? And I said, I have no idea. But this morning I woke up and I thought about a title. We are winning this war. I want to thank my good friends, Chip and Sally, who are here from our day, which inspired me for so many years. Many of you might have known that I joined the Civil Rights Movement in 1960 with Dr. King. In those days, we thought that everybody had the constitutional and civil and human rights for a constitution to come together and demand our rights. At 18 years old, I was committed to making a difference. I had no idea when I walked onto the campus at Tennessee State University that I would be engrafted and surrounded by John Lewis and Andy Young, who are a few years older than myself. But it's interesting about movement. You never know when you're caught up in a Kairos moment where everything comes in around you where you reach a point where you say, I cannot stand it any longer. As the young people say that enough is enough. Fannie Lou Hamer said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And most of you in this room today 
You know about climate change. You've heard about wildfires. You've heard about fracking. You're fighting nuclear plants. You understand the whole concept of uh, the, grass, the gas house emissions. But every now and then we get dull. I told some people I'm not going to another conference. I'm not going to another march. I'm not going to another rally. I won't even come to a summit unless I see some excitement among you, the co-warriors who are here today. You are the warriors. You are the fighters. What good? If we've got a cause, if our cause is just, and I know that it is, we've got to go back to what made us strong during the civil rights movement. What made us strong were two key words. One word was we were willing to sacrifice. The other was take a risk. Nowadays, people don't want to sacrifice anything. I'm convinced that we need to drain the swamp, starting with the swamp master at 1600 Pennsylvania, if we're to bring a change. But too many times we get caught up in what we're not and should be doing. Dr. Martin Luther King was a scholar. He was a preacher. <clears throat> he was a prophet. And it's interesting about life. So many things in life, you don't know when the mantle will be placed upon you. I think back now in Montgomery, Alabama, a young preacher, 26 years old, came down to Montgomery and a group met very much like people in the movement, the, the climate change movement today. And they said, we've got to make a difference. We've got to make a change here in Alabama. Martin Luther King sitting with two small children said, I'm 26 years old. I have nothing to contribute to that. And they had a meeting called the MIA, the Montgomery Improvement Association. And they said, why don't we get that young boy who just moved to town? Let him lead the movement. He said, that's not my issue. But they brought him in and the rest is history. He led a march, uh, a boycott. You never know when the mantle for you to take over, when the mantle for you to sustain yourself with all the events that are occurring around you. You might not know when, you might not know how, but you know where you must go now. Now is your time to make a difference. And I think now that you have an internal moral, uh, moral uh, gyroscope, we are not in a political battle. We're fighting economic struggles, but this is a moral war that we're in today. Immoral decisions are being made. It's one thing to talk about, let's get a, rid of this person or get rid of that person. But it's a moral war that we're in when immoral decisions are being made. And if the climate change, global warming, environmental justice movement is to have any merit, there are those of us who understand that this is a Kairos moment where you're not having the mantle placed upon you, but you've got to assume the mantle to move ahead. You don't know who will be watching you, who you will say, all of you warriors who came here, you should not come to just another conference, just another seminar, not just another workshop, but there will be something down inside of you that said, it is my responsibility. I have a moral obligation to make a difference when I leave here. All of you know more about climate change, more about fracking, know about nuclear power, know more about conditions than I. But I do not one thing. If I'm excited about something, I'm going to get enthused and I'm going to take somebody with me. We've got to vote like, we, like our lives depended on it. When you leave here, you ought to reach over and hold somebody's hand and say, guess what? I was at the Global Climate Summit. Don't show them their picture, your picture. Show them your actions. Let them hear your words. Register to vote. Make a difference in what we're doing. We are warriors, and we're gathered at this spot for a special reason, and that reason is to make a difference. Do as we did in the Civil Rights Movement. We eradicated misplaced ignorance. We annihilated fear. We bond together to and speak as one small voice. I now, Chip, I have decided now in my life, I'm through reporting about negative climate change issues. 20,000 died in this country, flooding in this place, wildfires in California. I can't take any more doom and gloom. I need some victory stories. I need to hear about solar. I need to hear about wind. I need to hear about alternative energy. I need to hear that we are winning this war, that we're not just some group sitting around in an academic setting discussing it. I don't need breaking news to tell me what's going on. I don't need another white paper, and I don't need uh, scientists. I see and smell what's going on in the environment, and that ought to propel, propel us to do much more. This is our time. Climate change is real. We've got to claim the victories. You will hear panelists in a few moments. You'll hear speakers. You'll hear people talking, business people, politicians. But it starts with one. I never thought that I would be standing before this distinguished body. Not me, a kid who went to Tennessee from Colorado in 1960, 58 years ago, fighting for the civil rights. And I'll never forget when I walked up at 18 years old in front of some steps, just like many of you stand in front of steps and protesting. And a man stuck his finger in my face and said, come here, boy. Let me tell you something. This is my country. 
You'll never ever, I, we run city hall, we run state government, we run the Congress, and we own the White House, and you think you're going to get the right to vote? You're sadly mistaken. You need to go back to Africa. I'm so glad that he told me where I should go. He's dead and I'm voting. Every now and then, you've got to know that just because they are deniers, just because they say that we will never stand up, it only takes two or three who are committed and who are concerned to make a difference. Fannie Lou Hamer said it best. In 1960, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I understood I had to sacrifice and risk. I never thought that I would be in a climate change movement. I never thought when a lady came up to me several years ago, Sally and Susan, I'm there fighting civil rights, police brutality. And this lady said, I want to change teenage pregnancy here in the state of Georgia. And I looked at her and I said, why? She said, I, I must change it. And I looked at her and said, this seems not to be your battle because she was a white woman. Why are you concerned about black young girls? She said, I'm concerned, but there's a group that's attacking me. I said, I'll go with you to talk to that group. And when I went to the group, and excuse me if I'm insulting anybody, it was a far right wing evangelical group. And they condemned her. And when I saw them condemning her, a moment can change your life. I got up and I tore into them. I let them have it. Her name was Jane Fonda. She was married to a man named Ted Turner. They introduced me to this thing called climate change. I could have cared less about polar bears and trees, but there is something inside in a moment that says we must make a difference. And it's our time right now. If not you, then who? And it gives us the victory. You in this room, I don't come here to try to inspire nor motivate. You can't motivate anybody. They have to motivate themselves. And what motivates you is the devastation that we see. Every time I go into an urban area and I see the asthmatic rates going up, when I see the devastation all around the world, I'm convinced that the warriors in this room, that we're co-warriors, that we cannot back up, we cannot bend, we cannot break, we cannot bow down, that we've got to stand firm, that we've got to know. You will hear from speakers later on. Most of you can quote all the statistics, but what makes it happen is that the belief in it. What good is a prayer unless you believe in the prayer? That's what's powerful. Some people say, well, Durley, you're so excited. You've got to be excited when you know that you're winning. How do you know that you're winning? Because there's so many people here at the summit. There are people all over from different organizations saying, we can because we must. This is our time. This is our moment. This is your moment. What do you decide to do with your time? What do you decide to do with this moment? I'm convinced now that you are the warriors. You are the victors. You are the winners. And guess what? You in this room, we make the real news. When the news comes out, nobody can doubt us. We cannot ever again say that we're not winners. The Civil Rights Movement taught me one thing. I never thought, I'm 77 years old now, a great-grandfather, and I talk to my grandchildren, I say, this is your time. Join in. We cannot break down and build silos, black and white and gay and lesbian and red and blue. We're all on this planet together, and environmental <laughs> climate change is an equal opportunity to destroy it. To me, it is the civil rights issue of our time. And if our time is to have any kind of sustainability, it's got to come from those in this room. It can't be the person next to you. We've got to join forces, hold hands, look up. And I think about this now. The God that created this universe is still in charge. And if we can understand and connect to something that's in charge, guess what? We will win this war. Thank you very much. Don't give up. Don't back up. Don't quit. Don't turn around. Know that this is a, get excited about something. Don't just say this is another conference. This is another summit. Every now and then you ought to want to stand up and say, we will not be defeated. We will not bow down. We will not back up. This is our moment. This is our time. Don't, don't take it for granted. Don't take this for granted. We are winning. We are not losers. God bless you. Did I do it in eight minutes? <laughs>